0: The Water Values Podcast, session 45.
1: Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water.
0: Now, here's your host, Dave McGibson. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thank you so much for listening. You really are appreciated. Uh, For those of you on the mailing list for the Water Values, I haven't sent a newsletter out in a while, but hope to soon. In that upcoming newsletter, uh, date of release yet to be determined, I'll highlight a couple blog posts that I've recently put up. Please check them out at thewatervalues.com. One of the posts deals with P3 oversight and was inspired by my conversation with Allentown Mayor Ed Pauloski in uh, the Water Values Podcast Session 44. And another deals with municipal stormwater programs, including uh, referencing a new National Association of Clean Water Agencies resource and some thoughts I had on setting up municipal stormwater utilities. Uh, more blog posts are coming soon, too. Uh, the one that I've got queued up next involves uh, water utility bill affordability and my thoughts on how water utilities Uh, need to adjust their thinking on water rate increases. Well, with that out of the way, let's get on to today's podcast. We're speaking with Judd Hill of Blue Star Capital. Judd has been involved in the water sector investments uh, for over 30 years, and he provides a great deal of insight into the variables to consider when investing in the water sector. He was tremendously knowledgeable, as you're about to find out. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Judd, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. To start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, back in the 70s, which, if, if many recall, it was a pretty dirty city. And I was motivated to, you know, try to clean up the environment. And I went to uh, undergrad school in, um, in pre-med and biology, and then went on to to graduate school in engineering and got a master's in civil sanitary and actually had a scholarship where I helped clean up the um, the coke of an effluent wastewater from most of the steel mills. And that was kind of the, the genesis of my academic career. And then I was hired by Atlantic Richfield, um, um, ironically, to help them get into the water business in 1980 and um, helped uh, um, really begin to revolutionize, if you will, on taking um, wastewater and converting it to gray water, which is pretty commonplace these days. I'll take domestic water into water that goes on a golf course. And and ARCO had a water business for a couple of years that was very successful. Then ARCO, like many other of the majors, decided to get back in the oil business. And I left and helped Westinghouse start an environmental company and stayed there for about ten years, and we did a whole range of water and wastewater treatment and recycling services. Um, I then uh, was I spent some time with HSBC, uh, and we banked the uh, the water sector in its heyday, in the days of you know U.S. Filter and some of the great brands that that bought up by strategics like Xenon and um, Memtech and Memcor and. And all the big water utilities were being consolidated by the, the Europeans. So that was a, a pretty um, active time in the, in the banking sector. Um, and then I ironically went on to become a private equity guy. I was hired by the Texas Pacific Group to be a partner in a water fund called Aqua International Partners. But we deployed about $350 bucks around the world in a whole variety of water investments from drip irrigation to tanks to bottle of water. Um, and then about four years ago, I was recruited by a, a very successful energy private equity firm called Natural Gas Partners, where I head up a water initiative where um, NGP you know had the foresight to think about the nexus of water, ag, and energy. So we looked at a whole range of different investment opportunities um, where those three legs of the stool, if you will, talk to each other and we looked at, you know, getting ahead of uh, the investment curve, if you will, where um, there was some pretty unique investment opportunities. I and, mean, you know, the obvious ones relate to things like um, appropriate stewardship of frac water, recycle and reuse and disposal and treatment. You know, that's the energy water nexus, looking at how to smart farm um, using water more um reliably and 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 as a better store than just flood irrigation and be able to do that so that one would have a better yield of, of a crop but also be a better store to the water asset um uh, and about a year ago um I went out on my own and put my own investment banking um and um, investment um, opportunity called blue star capital which i i currently manage
0: well, well that is quite a history you've got there um Done. You've been around for a long time. Can you, can you describe a little bit about uh, how you go about investing in the water sector? You know, you you kind of mentioned there were a number of different things you were looking at, from drip irrigation to to all those things. How yeah. h- how do you kind of categorize all the the broad spectrum of of water investments?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I've taken thirty five years to try to answer that question. <laughs> I'm not sure I still have a good answer. Um, but, you know, water obviously is a very exciting space for a lot of people um, that want to find a way to invest in water. And as everyone appreciates, you know, water is the only commodity which truly has no substitute, unlike energy or food, etc. cetera. Um, but yet we look at water almost as a free good um, because it's so ubiquitous and, and people think that, you know, there is just a fundamental human right to free water, and in the abstract, that's interesting. But the reality is, you know, it takes money to uh, collect water, treat water, and then transmit the water, and that can be a, a pretty healthy number. Um, and so, the challenge always is where you operate on this water value chain, if you will, in order to you know make a good return for your investors, and. If you look at you know the water utility business, for example, if you're an investor, it's very difficult to really make money investing in a water utility because it's a regulated return, and it's very long-term capital. Um, so trying to find opportunities whereby you can put capital to work and then be able to harvest that investment in a classic you know three to six-year kind of time frame, as most private equity investors wish to do is very hard to do in the water business. It takes very patient capital that, um, in some cases, needs to think in terms of almost decades, or at least you know um, over five years. And and those investments you know have different flavors. Um, I've done a lot in the water rights sector, where you actually can you know buy water rights the same way you would buy a mineral right. And those rights are actually detachable from the property, and that construct works in the western U.S. So you can actually buy ag land, and, for example, if you smart farmed it, you could then free up the excess water and then be able to resell that water and do what's called re-judification, which is a fancy legal term for changing its use. you be able to use that water for municipal and industrial use. And... Um, Most folks don't appreciate this, but to build a house in the western U.S., you must have a 100-year assured water supply to get a building permit. And we all talk location, location, location. Well, the real operative differentiator in many cases in the western U.S. is do you have a long-term right to use the water? So there's an interesting dynamic in that particular slice of the water value chain about if you think about uh, how to be a better steward of the water asset and use water, you know, more reliably and conserve it, then you're able to use that excess water in a water bank or, you know, keep it local and become, you know, a friend of the environment and also a friend of the community. There's been a lot of war stories about people try to acquire pockets of water and then wheel it or pump it to some other big city. Those are always disasters because water is a very emotional good, and and it's very heavy, and so it's very expensive to move. So it is very much a local good. Um, You know, people think about oil and water. You know, oil, even today, at $75 a barrel, is pretty expensive per barrel. You know, treated water or potable water in a barrel is probably about three to four cents a barrel, and it weighs seven pounds a gallon. So it's very expensive to move it. So water needs to stay a very local good. And so the dynamics for water are, are usually very, very local. Um, it, so there's you know, lots of different ways to look at how to invest in water. You know, there's the various technology opportunities from microfiltration to, you know, getting um, some of these trace pharmaceuticals out of the water. Um, various ways to more efficiently, um, both chemically and and by using less energy, to filter or treat water. Um, People always talk about, you know, these are going to be a a golden mousetrap or, you know, a new kind of paradigm shift in water treatment. In my opinion, um, probably not, because there's only really three ways to get contamination out of water. You can do it physically through a membrane or other way. Um, or you can do it thermally. Obviously, you can, you know, evaporate it and distill it. That always works, but it's expensive. Um, and, and you can do it chemically. You can add some chemistry, and you can quietulate out the contaminants and both settle out. So, you know, Water treatment has been around for a very long time. And I always argue who can do it most efficiently and reliably and do it for, you know, the, the most um, effective price? And, and that's where it goes back to the original point that, you know, water's not a free good, and people need to think about water as a valued commodity. I always use the example of, um, you know, I teach a class in economics, and there's an economic term, term called perfect price inelasticity. Fancy term that basically says it's something that you'll pay any price for um, and something you can't live without. And a good example is insulin. And Oh, yeah, got to have my insulin. I'll pay any price. Then you mention water, people think, well, how, how does it work for water? And so, well, you know, water is the one good that you cannot live more than a few days without. And if I had a big bucket of money, you had a big bucket of money, and I had a couple gallons of water, we negotiating, I guarantee you, I'm going to get all your money, and you'll get some of my water. Um, but people don't think about water as that kind of a valued commodity. Um, You know, I ask people, how much to pay for your water bill? Oh, gosh, I'm not sure. How how much pay you for your cable bill and your cell phone bill? Oh gosh, that's a couple hundred a month maybe. What's your water bill? Well, when they think about it, it's maybe 20 bucks um, a month. It's still a very inexpensive asset, but still it's the most critical one that we have. So, you know, there remains lots of opportunities, in my opinion, to invest in the water space. And as I mentioned, everything from, you know, drip irrigation, micro irrigation, smarter ways to use water in agriculture, um, smarter ways to use water and recycle it and repurpose it um, in the energy space, because everybody now speaks about, you know, the fracking sector. You know, that's very water intensive. And... and we have to think about ways to recycle and reuse and and, and dispose of it in, in responsible ways so you know water albeit you need to be a very patient investor um still has pretty unique um investment dynamics to it um i've traveled the world you know raising capital for various private equity funds and you know A lot of, you know, pension funds and endowments and sovereign wealth funds all have exposure to, you know, usual things, energy, agriculture, biotech, real estate, fixed income. But they all want to try to get some of their dollars exposed to water for obvious reasons. And it's been a challenge because it's tough to find a place where you can find safe hands that know how to invest in water and have a long-term horizon. Um, and or um, invest in a a mutual fund or a a public equities fund that has an exclusive focus just in water equities. Um, So the demand is definitely large, um, and the space is growing, but it still has a long way to go before people really begin to appreciate and and value price water.
0: Now, Judd, you mentioned the water value chain. Can you talk a little about what... When you talk about the water value chain, you know, could you describe that, please? What is it?
1: Sure. I mean, the, the water value chain is just kind of a, an, a, kind of a catch-all that people think about, you know, water, and and it and it covers everything from agriculture to you know how we grow our food to how we need water, you know, in our homes or in industry, um, how we manage water in terms of what's called non-point source runoff, like urban runoff, and how you manage and make sure that water is clean enough to discharge and it gets out the herbicides and the pesticides and the oil and grease um, all the way to point of use or point of entry into a home. And there are just hundreds of examples of, you know, where you might be able to think about changes in the value chain, if you will. And in some way to look at it, you know, Like Moore's Law, you know, Moore's Law as it relates to, um, you know, chip technology. The old saying is, you know, chips get, you know, twice as fast for half the price every 18 months or something like that. You know, Moore's Law kind of is at work in the water sector, too. Um, A good example being people now are thinking about all these trace pharmaceuticals that are in the drinking water. And, you know, how can one be sure that you're getting those out of your drinking water. And the reality is when water is treated in a drinking water facility in every community, it doesn't do anything to remove those trace pharmaceuticals. And it's still an unknown. You know, do they have a bioaccumulation effect or can they be harmful to young children or elderly people, et cetera? You know, there's still unknown science. So there are, you know, interesting solutions now being looked at in terms of, advanced nanotechnologies to get some of these trace pharmaceuticals out of the water at the point of use where you actually drink the water. And one interesting thought is that if you think about it, every every gallon of water that enters a home, you can drink, albeit less than 1% of that water you actually consume. Most of that water is going... Um, in your dishwater or in, you know, to wash dishes or to water your yard or to wash clothes, you don't consume it, yet we spend a whole lot of money as if we're going to drink it. Um, and You could argue the economics of that, but that's how we built our society over the last 50 to 100 years. And, and just as we think about cell phones, you know, in emerging markets, you know, they're not laying on copper wire anymore. To build the old, um, you know, hardwired phone, everything is wireless and Wi-Fi. Some of that will be true as emerging market countries um, begin to develop. You know, they'll look at a clean sheet of paper and say, you know what, doesn't make sense to plumb everything with um, very clean water and then have that diluted into um, our our sewage water and then have that be transported a long distance into a wastewater treatment plant. It may make more sense now that we have technology and have a cleaner sheet of paper to say let's do blue water pipe just for drinking water. And that's a smaller volume. And then that water goes into your, um, your toilets or other non-potable uses. And then that black water, as they refer to it, the sewage, then is concentrated and actually has an energy source to it. And you can then think about recycling that more efficiently, more efficiently you're recovering some of the energy you know that's in that um, um, you know sewage volume and, and do it in a much more effective way. so you conserve water, you conserve energy and you are much better stored of an asset than we are now, which is you know um, pretty ar- archaic um, probably, Depending on where you are in the U.S., um, as much as 30 to 40 percent of all the water that's treated in a drinking water plant is lost to exfiltration, leaky pipes. That's a lot of energy and a lot of money spent to clean water that's just lost through leaky pipes. And some of these pipes are, you know, 50, 75, in some cases 100 years old. That Those economics don't make a lot of sense. Um, so there's a lot of rethinking going on. And then the challenge becomes, okay, great. You know, we know there's an $800 billion, a trillion dollar shortfall in U.S. infrastructure. How are we going to pay for that? You know, gee, that's a, a good thing to do for society. And, um, you know, the days of what was called the Construction Grants Program in the 70s, where we actually built a lot of this stuff, and the government, you know, contributed 80 cents of the dollar, the local community contributed 20 cents. That worked. Today, those economics won't happen under our, you know, allocation of capital, um, federal, state structure. So everyone's looking at various public-private partnership strategies, which are just beginning to evolve. How we can deploy, you know, private capital, not public capital, to invest in that infrastructure and still give a reasonable return back to those private investors so that we can, you know, rehabilitate and improve, you know, U.S. water and wastewater infrastructure. So there's lots of capital being deployed and a lot of new ideas um, being tested about how to best do that.
0: What are you seeing out there in terms of the opportunities for, let's talk about the, you, you talked about, you know, converting the black water to energy and all that kind of stuff. Are are those technologies ready for in investments like like the funds that you're managing or are they are they at a smaller level are they they kind of you know what's the what's the state of the industry in that in that regard
1: that's an excellent question um because the the challenge in the water business is there are lots of interesting you know kind of bench scale or pilot scale you know ready solutions where it's not so much the efficacy of a solution. They will work. It's a question of economics and reliability. And so there's a lot of investment opportunity uh, in the early venture stage mode where you're looking to go through that, you know, kind of first testing of will it work at volume and will a customer write you a check to buy that device. And that's a interesting investment place, but there's a lot of what I call binary risk, which is classic to venture. Where for every ten investments you make, you know two or three will make you a great return, and um, you know three or four or five may give you a zero return because they didn't pan out, and then you know three or four in the middle consume a lot of capital and will give you a modest return, which is the classic venture model. Then there's what I really call kind of the valley of death, um, which a lot of water companies pass through in that once they prove something works. To try to get it adopted into, particularly the municipal marketplace, it can take as long as a decade, because most municipal buyers, um, you know, want to be first to be tenth in that you know <laughs> chain of being a buyer, and and so we'll say, well, okay, this is interesting, but you know, once it's been working for three or four years and you got a hundred customers, then call me, um, because there's no incentive for risk. And a lot of great small water companies didn't fully appreciate that value of death and just didn't have the capital to survive. And then when you get to the other side, if you make it, um, you know there is such an appetite for good proven water solutions that the, uh, the large strategic buyers, which are high-quality companies like a GE or a Danaher or some of the large European firms, will you know, buy those small companies and tuck them in to their big water company and put them on the menu, and um, from an investor's perspective, um, it's difficult to find a company that's growing and dynamic that's affordable to invest in because large strategics and or public markets will come in and pay a very high valuation um, for those enterprises because the market's so large and those there's very few that have crossed the desert, the desert, if you will. So it makes it a challenge to think about how you operate as an investor and where you want to be on that on that, that continuum. Um, it's easy to say as an investor, gosh, I want to find a company that's got uh, that, you know, 10 million bucks of cash flow and making great margins, and they're going to triple or quadruple over the next three or four years, and I want to invest in that. Well, doesn't everybody? And those are difficult to find. Um, that are reasonably priced to have, you know, smart private equity to partner with. But, you know, that's what you get paid to do to go out there and find those opportunities and, and partner with management and, um, and, 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 drive, you know, your capital and management's expertise to create shareholder value. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of the, that's part of the fun. That's part of the challenge.
0: Mm. Now it- Sounded like you know. There's a lot of risk there in the new technologies. Do you think um, some of the the private capital is starting to look? You mentioned P3s and infrastructure earlier. Are they trying to to find new ways to get into into the infrastructure side uh, to yeah. deploy to deploy that capital rather than investing in the you know a technology that may hit yeah, or miss? That's, a, that's another
1: great question, and that really is really a kind of a realignment of the flavor of capital that's that's looking at the water marketplace. If you look at classic private equity and, and you know we call it you know ten year money. You raise money from all the pension funds and endowments and et cetera and usually that money is invested over a ten year period. So you invest it, you grow it and you harvest it and all that happens ten within ten years. Well, that doesn't work if you're trying to invest in you know, long-term infrastructure and think about the way to return. So you need to create another flavor of capital that has a much longer horizon and, and a lower risk profile. So your returns may not be as high, but your risks are dramatically lower, and you're looking for this kind of long-term, dividending low-risk investment play. And that's why you know, there's some folks doing that now that are finding buckets of capital that think in terms of decades, not three or four years. And I also think about how do we better align where the money comes from and where the capital is deployed? And a good example is, and I know there's some states thinking about this, that they have these very large state pension funds that are all trying to get yield and you know put that money to work so they can fund all their retirees which are growing disproportionately to people contributing to the pension fund, which is you know, one of the big challenges. And so there's some thought of, like, let's take Pennsylvania. They have you know billions of dollars in, in, a, in a pension fund. They need yield. And why doesn't Pennsylvania create kind of a sinking a fund or capital source where they'll invest that money into their own communities, their own pension years and their children, et cetera, and be that part of that three piece, employ that capital within the state, and be able to then get a yield of a return over 30 years to put a couple hundred million bucks in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or whatever, and have a lot of comfort that people will always pay their water bill. And you're going to make eight, nine, 10% yield on your capital, which is a great yield in this market. And everybody wins. The environment wins, the citizens win you know, the, the, the pension fund wins, the pensioners win, because they're getting a good return with low risk. So I think we're going to see, you know, more of that maybe localized, you know, 3P model work with a lot of global money. You know, a lot of global money is much more patient than, you know, a classic, you know, private equity structure is. <clears throat> and and those, you know, large family offices and, and you know, larger players are now thinking more strategically about you know not just three years, but maybe thirty years or forty years, and and, and doing things that you know are going to have a, a safer and less risky yield, but a more predictable yield.
0: Hmm. Um, we also talked a little about you know the, how the water industry is is kind of localized. You know, it's heavy, um, and so that. And I just know that the water industry, at least from the utility perspective, is pretty fragmented. Is what kind of uh, difficulties does that bring to the table when you're trying to to invest? I I, I would, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. What what kind of difficulties but, does the the market fragmentation bring to the investing?
1: Yeah, team? again, um, it depends on where you're investing, right? But you know, water will always be a local good. If you're going to actually manage the commodity, if you're trying to you know, move it or um, own it or do something unique to it, it'll always be a very localized asset. To the extent that you're looking at, you know, ways to, um, you know, make hyper-pure water for the pharmaceutical sector, which is a high-tech solution, or a better way to take these nutraceuticals out of drinking water. I mean, those are applications that obviously aren't local, can have a, a global need, um, which can be very interesting to to explore and trying to think about, you know, where those needs are going to be in, in five or 10 years. And also think about the fact that the price of water is going up. And in some communities, water rates are going up 10, 15, 20 percent, which one would argue, oh, that's a bad thing. Well, not really. That's a good thing, because people then respect water. Because we all expect we all respect price, right. And so if water is more expensive, you're a better steward of that asset, you're going to conserve it more. and when the price of water goes up, a lot of these very interesting solutions now become cost effective when they weren't cost effective when you know water was almost free or, 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 or super cheap. You know I, I use the analogy of oil. You know when oil was 10 bucks a barrel, you know, we all had big cars, and we didn't really care, and, and you know, 100 bucks a barrel. Everybody's an environmentalist and, you know, driving a Prius and whatever. <laughs> and I would argue that if energy was priced like water and it was almost a free commodity, I don't think we'd be chattering as we do about being great energy um, conservationists.
0: Right, right. Now, you also talked about, you know, people who, quote, know how to invest in water. Um, what does, what's that person look like? What, who are the folks who know how to invest in water and what, what makes them? up? Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, I, I, think it's, it's a, it's a small subset that, but, but growing, um, in, in some ways it's, you know, people think it's, it's easy because it's just water, but there's a lot of know-how and expertise and science that, um. You have to understand or be able to evaluate if you're an investor to, to understand, um, you know, all these different, you know, ceramic filters or different chemistries that might be used to, to clean water or different RO membranes that are used to, you know, take out the salts um, or different energy-efficient pumps that are used to, to move water. So there's a lot of technology and science and know-how. That's required to really be a sophisticated and, and, and smart investor, um, as well as understanding, you know, all the various complications that you have to think through and complexities of capital structure, in terms of, you know, how you make an investment. If it's a, you know, public-private partnership, you know, how you use debt, how you use mezzanine debt, how you use equity you think about long-term taker pays there's a lot of sophistication in in, in in deal structure so it takes a, a pre you know smart bunch of guys that have a pretty diverse skill set to really be successful and effective and in, in, in trying to invest in, in the water business
0: well that makes a lot of sense given your engineering background and how you came up through uh, the, the companies you identified earlier so that that really connects uh, a couple of dots for me there with that. With that, um, I'm when
1: also interactionize my own existence, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: now, uh, when you're looking at all these companies, you know we've talked about, um, you know, kind of some of the issues that you you need to be aware of when you're when you're investing in the water sector. But are there any kind of keys that you that are, are a pretty easy sign that it's you know a thumbs up or just you're not even going to look at it.
1: Yep, yep. And it, it, this is, I think, the biggest key. And we always use the saying, you know, you bet on the jockeys, not the horses. Even though you have to understand technology and you know all the issues that relate to that, but the most successful investors are great people pickers, and and you're really trying to find the the talent that understands the problem. Understand the market, understand its customers, understand the pricing, manufacturing, and 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 find that um, team, if you will, that you're going to put your capital with. And this business is more about, you know, picking the talent, finding the jockeys, than it is about trying to find that next, you know, golden mousetrap. So, the greatest challenge that you know I had as an investor is trying to find that talent. And then once you do find it, then you have to figure out how you're going to convince them why they should want you as your partner. Because, you know, money is still a commodity, but a lot of it out there. And, well, they'll have some, but why should, you know, that management team want you as their partner? And how do you convince them that together with their expertise and your capital and hopefully your know-how as an investor that, you know, one plus one will equal five? so the greatest challenge that investors have is you know trying to find those smart guys that have a you know an unfair advantage or a different angle or you know some way to excel and and put your capital to work so you can make money for you investors and 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 have a technology or a service you know ultimately create shareholder value and that's the biggest challenge is people
0: <laughs> well th- Jed, you've been absolutely fantastic today walking us through all these uh, various facets of the investment sector and for water. Uh, I imagine we could talk for a heck of a long time, but we're at, you know, over 30 minutes now. And so I thought uh, before we sign off, could you just tell folks where they could go to find out more about you and Blue Star Capital?
1: Sure. Um, I'm still a very young entity as a as an enterprise, but if someone wanted to, uh, to reach me, they could uh... – sounds crazy. Um, just, um, email me at, um, a Judson Hill at, at gmail.com or you can find me on LinkedIn.
0: Terrific. Well, Judd, again, thanks so much for your time and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You bet. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye, Bye, Bye. Judd. Well, I hope you liked that conversation with Judd Hill of Blue Star Capital. Judd was terrific and I really appreciate him taking some time to speak with us. Uh, here are my takeaways. Uh, First, because water is a highly regulated industry, it needs patient capital. Uh, In other words, in contrast to typical private equity investments, which are three to six year investment timeframes, water investments uh, typically need to look at a minimum of a five year investment window. And this uh, concerns me because it tells me that a lot of capital uh, will likely bypass the water sector, not even give it a sniff uh, because of that long return window. Now, I'm, I'm no professional investor. But that seems to me to be the logical outcome of the the patient capital uh, scenario in which uh, water the water sector uh, is, um, and without the, that that capital that I think is going to be bypassing the water sector, uh, that could cause water utilities to miss out on some great opportunities uh, where uh, investments that could pay back sooner uh, may have attracted more capital. So. I think that's a concerning uh, issue. Uh, my next takeaway is related to the long-term investment horizon. Uh, and that's the risk of technologies dying on the vine because of the slow uptake of the technology. You know, As Jed indicated, there's a race amongst water utilities to be 10th to adopt a given technology. Uh, no one wants to be the first to test out that new technology. So it's a slow and laborious process to get the technology adopted by water utilities. Uh, this is this issue has come up with some of the other guests I've had uh on the Water Values podcast before. And I'd like to see uh more water utilities uh be a little more aggressive in using and adopting technology. Uh of course I'm not advocating for the reckless adoption of new technologies. Utilities still need to think through the issues that rolling a new technology out is going to um is going to raise when they do that. Uh but you know, at, at worst. Uh, I'd like to see the, the rollout be seamless to the customer and no back office issues uh, created with, the, with, that, uh, with that rollout. So um, th- that is a, also a concerning thing, just that these technologies are taking so long to get to market that a lot of the good ones are dying on the vine. And my final takeaway is Judd's analogy, uh, that you bet on the jockeys and not the horses. You know, a technology may look great, but if the wrong people are backing it, Uh, they'll have a harder time selling its investment potential. And this is true for a lot of things in life. You you know, you bet on good people and you've got a great shot at winning. Well, that wraps it up. You can find the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 45. Please let me know what you thought of the interview by leaving a comment at thewatervalues.com. And you can also tweet at me at DTM 1993 or tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervilles, watervalues. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, don't use watervilles. Use the hashtag Water Values. Thank you again for your listenership. And please, please, please consider putting uh, a rating and review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory on which you listen to the podcast. Thank you again. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it.